Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the 16mm Film Crew Podcast. I'm Cindy. And I'm Dale. You can watch us on YouTube. You can like and comment on our YouTube videos and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can support us on Anchor. You can listen to us everywhere podcasts are found. Give us a rate and review at 16mm Film Crew Podcast. And you can visit us on our website at www.16millimeterfilmcrew.com. Also, if you hear um, something in the background, they're mowing the lawn, because of course they are. So, sorry. Apologies for that. All right. So, this week, we are talking about Petite Maman 2021. Here's your synopsis. Nellie, an eight-year-old girl, has just lost her beloved grandmother and is helping her parents clean out her mother's childhood home. One day, her mom abruptly leaves, and Nellie meets a girl her age as she's building a treehouse in the woods. Petite Mama is a 2021 French fantasy drama film, and it's written and directed by Celine Scanwell, um, who also directed Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It stars Josephine Sans, Gabrielle Sans, and Stéphane Verpon. And um, Dale, what were your thoughts about this movie? Um, I, I loved it. Um, it has, even though it's, okay, in the sense of modern movie-going people, um, everybody's been, like, hitting that good two-hour, 18-minute mark. I mean, and then this movie, um, it was an hour and, like, 17 minutes, I think. Um, I think it could have been probably, like, a 30-minute 30-minute sh- short to a degree, but it's still, it's still a feature-length movie, um, in the definition of the term. Um, I, I loved it. Um, it's one of those experiences, I think, um, as far as the opportunity to like meet your parents when they're young, I think everybody craves and it's um and it's I like I related to per- personally because you know I, I was my grandmother you know a year a year ago and me and I like me and her were close a couple years ago so like, I understand that even though I'm not eight years old I'm a grown man that's still that connection there and trying to build a connection with your parents to fill the gaps of and that thing is I was really relatable to me so. Yeah, I liked that this was a story about, like, a young person coming to terms with the loss of someone that they're close to, but also about how, um, I guess, I think what Celine was saying in an interview was that it's like an intergenerational story, so it's not just about the mother and the, and, um, the daughter, but also about the grandmother who is no longer um, there, and reflecting on I guess meeting your parents in ways that like um meeting your parents in a way that you can kind of more understand them it's different thinking about it as an adult because I think as an adult you kind of already know like that your parents were people before you know they had you and they had their own struggles and stuff and so meeting them at a different time it does seem more I guess like uh, fulfilling or satisfying to have that kind of encounter but when you're still a kid I don't know if you have those kind of ideas yet like you're still kind of seeing your parents as people I mean your parents is just your parents because I guess you haven't had the experience or the age or whatever to like understand life and understand how complicated it could be and understand your parents in the context of that so it's interesting seeing it from a child's perspective of meeting their parent at the same age and getting that connection and then also understanding the grandmother through that the other child's um or your parent it's a fantasy so i, I don't want to give too much away because i think that's kind of the spoiler part of it but um yeah i think it's interesting to see it from that perspective because to me i was like why it's interesting that like the kids are speaking like adults like they seem very like like they're very aware and they kind of understand i don't know more uh, mature cues or like no no kind of what to do or how to like they seem very responsible i don't know if i was that way when i was eight years old but that's the vibe I was getting. But when I understood what Celine was saying was like, she was trying to show that children are fully autonomous, like people. And they're not just kids. Like they're not just like lumps of mass that you just tell them what to do. They actually have like agency. So I think it made more sense in the context of that to like, see, okay, that's why they're behaving this way, reacting certain ways and stuff. Like the beginning scene where the daughter is like feeding her mom little snacks while the mom is driving back from the, um, funeral or me from the hospital and I thought that was just 
like a really sweet way to indicate like caring or taking care of someone who is obviously sad. So that was interesting to me. I don't know. I really liked that aspect. I thought it was kind of fascinating. But yeah. Yeah. No. I. I, I yeah. I've I noticed that a lot, and particularly the scene where they're acting like adults and yes. talking about like you know. I love you. Come run away to America with me and start a new family. And then they go, this is my baby. The the way they're, they're acting like adults, but then away from those scenes when they're acting like children um, and they're talking, this is before she reveals, Oh, that she's, you know, her daughter from the future. She kind of says, um, Oh, my grandmother died too. And her mother's response to the child was, did you like her? And then, but when they're pretending to be adults and they talk about relationships, they use the word love. That's kind of like that understanding, like for for kids, love love is like, that's the same thing, but for adults, love is love. It's they're like really dividing. And I, I, I really like that point because no kid's going to so go, oh, I love that. They're going to use, I like, and it's not until you become more adult, you where you understand the, the differences. So what you're saying is, they're being more mature as kids. That scene, those two scenes to me really sell that point of them being mature and aware as uh, scenes. Um, I do, I did, I did like this movie because it's also, it's dealing with grief. Um, mm. Usually in, the, in like times of grief, you, you're trying to connect with somebody. And usually when you're both sad, you kind of don't know words. So I feel like this moment, like it was honestly a way for and, and they, they go back into the, the future and the mother and daughter kind of realize, oh, they remember the experience. The mother re- remembers the experience in a weird way. I don't, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't understand. But, like, it's, I don't know, like, being, grieving opens you, I think really opens you more to connect, connect to people in a way that you never did before. Especially when we're talking about the, the her grandmother and daughter, Nellie's grandmother dying on the mother being 31 and then the mother also having a surgery on her like ninth birthday like kind of how those all kind of those two times intersect because she's remembered them like as an adult the mother's remembering oh like 21 years ago i was having a surgery to avoid a, a death like my mother you know that that kind of mm. so i really i really like that whole selling point of those and i love watching child actors emote because Honestly, I think if an American director did write this, you'd have a whole internal monologue for the child. Whereas with this movie, they relied on a lot of the looks. Like, you see her when they enter the house, she's looking around like... Mm. yeah I totally agree like I actually love that this movie is very quiet like there's not even like really much of a score or any music until like the very end so it's a very quiet still movie and it's a shorty which i love because i feel like everything that needed to be communicated was communicated in that time frame um but you're exactly right like i think that people and i'm a person who loves dialogue i love rich text like i love people talk a lot on movies um but i think that in this instance, it was so good that there wasn't that much conversation. And then when people did say something, it was really impactful. Like, I think towards the end, they're in the bed. It's like the night before she goes to have the surgery. And they're talking about the mother again, or her mom. She's talking directly to her in just a younger form and saying, well, did you want the baby? Which is something that I was so, like shocked that they even like who even thinks about that when you're eight but I just thought that was so interesting because it was like whoa and she's like yeah I did so it doesn't feel like it wasn't like oh um maybe there was any regret or there was any type of like dismissal of the child just because the mom does leave initially when um like the original eight-year-old 
uh, Nellie when the mom does kind of leave abruptly and everyone's like, okay, well, where did she go? But it's not because she, and she does come back. And it's, so it's not like, oh, I don't want you. I did. I did want you and I still do. And I still care about you. I guess I just had to process and deal with this stuff kind of on my own for a second. So I don't know. I loved that line there that just really like hit me. And I was like, wow, that's so good. But again, there's not that much dialogue. Like everything is communicated toward with looks. And I don't think the director even rehearsed the kid actors. So everything that was happening was just kind of happening the way it was. And she was saying that like, they picked, they figured out how things worked and like how they, how to move, like how to, they were very aware of their bodies. I think she said. So it's like, I guess there's something that there's stuff that you don't really need to communicate to children just because they're younger. Like they'll just pick it up and understand like, okay, this is what happens. And I think that's really cool too. So I guess the process of making this movie and then also what you see on screen seemed like very similar. It seemed like very synonymous, I guess. Yeah. And natural. Yeah. That, 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 um, ability of like letting kids but be kids in a way was really obviously a scene where they're making the, the pancakes or crepes, the the crepes. Um, the, mm-hmm. the subtitles say pancakes but whatever they're crepes yeah. <laughs> um, and you see like you can tell the kids aren't really acting in the moment but the the crews the the people behind the camera are aware of you know most likely in that situation they probably had multiple cameras on the go and you're just following them in different motions what i thought was really good and to your point when you're talking at night i think the mother the the mother as a child says like something along, I was like, "Oh, I'm already thinking of you," and I was like, "Oh, that's so, mm. so, that's so sweet." It's so that's, sweet. So yeah, but yeah, this I I really like. I love like I'm like I love this like this kind of generation. Like everybody is like voicing. I think I think people forget like art. Art is also partly therapeutic. And yeah. a lot of a lot of generations of filmmakers our age, a lot of the emotions and stuff they're feeling are being expressed through art. And I think we're all at the same point of adulthood and trying to re- recognize where we are and who our parents are. Like even in um, Only Murders in the Building, um, uh, uh, Richard Martin's character is like, when I say Richard Martin, Steve Martin's character is like, um, mm. oh, growing up, everybody said I was just like my father. So I was worried that I ended up being like a father, so I didn't try. Like, we're all having the same feel- feelings. And like I feel like every like the last couple of years, every single director, writer, creator, they're all expressing that same kind of you know pressure of you know living up to their parents' standards, wondering if they're much like their parents, and you know how to like I know me as a adult, I like I'll watch my dad and like yo I'm just like this man in every shape, shape, shape or form, and mm-hmm. I make fun of my mom jokingly, and she'll get mad about. It. I was like, but you married him, so you know he must have qualities. You like, and then I'll <laughs> I'll literally like. But then in the back of my mind, you also realize some quality appearance you don't like. And you always, yeah. you're always, there's always that fear. And so I'm really happy, like, we're all kind of on that same wavelength at the same time. No matter where, like, you could be us doing a podcast, you could be a Hollywood director, you could be a writer on, like, Tumblr or, you know, all those other sites, blogging sites. We're all kind of processing and thinking the same thing, like, at a, really at the same time, which is really weird. So... Yeah. <laughs> yeah i i think that from what i'm gathering from this movie and from what i've seen from a couple of other films it's like the best ideas are like the simplest ones like i feel like the most impactful films i've seen over like the last year have been very simple stories about families and i guess maybe it's because of like COVID or something like that like we're in a time where i like it's so confusing and things are changing every single day. Life seems so uncertain that like, that's the stuff that you go back to. Like that's kind of your foundation of like your loved ones, the people around you, how you understand the world and how kind of you relate to your family or how you relate to yourself, self-discovery. Like I feel like those things, those films always seem to like catch me the most. So yeah, I think that's very powerful. And you're right. I think, Understanding intergenerational issues is a very strong theme because it's something that everyone can relate to because everyone has those thoughts. So, yeah. Um, 
Any other last things before we read it? Oh, uh, no. I, like, I think we covered everything. I think, like, yeah, I, I, love, I love this movie. Even though I think some people might say it's, like, slow and boring because, like I said, there's not enough dialogue. But you hear what you said earlier was there's, there's dialogue when needed. Right. It's not bloated. So I, I right. love the movie. What are you giving it? I'm going to give it uh eight out of ten. Um, mm-hmm. I do think um it could probably have been shorter to a degree. I don't th- mm-hmm. I don't think it really needed to be an hour and seventeen. But once again, I'm saying this as a viewer. I'm not like the director. Probably like, look, I want I want these moments in there, you know, just just. But that's that's them. Um, that could have been shorter. That's me. Um, I do love those scenes where I let the children be children. I love how they expect their their agency, like you said. Um, especially in those scenes where they're acting like adults, so they go back and forth between being kids and adults. Um, I do, I do love that uh, part. I, I do find the ending kind of weird, where the mother kind of is aware, <laughs> like somehow, like gives off the air that the mother remembers being a child and meeting her daughter, which is like kind of weird. But once again, it's fantasy. Um, but yeah, all in all, uh, I like, yeah, 8 out of 10 for me. Yeah, I think I'll probably give it the same 8 out of 10. I think I gave it like a 3 out of 5 star review on Letterboxd. I could have given it a 3 and a half star. I'll go back and change it. Yeah, so yeah. Um, yeah, I thought this movie was really great. I guess because I wasn't, it was kind of slow. But I think that all the moments that were necessary were I feel like all the moments were necessary. So I, even if it was slow, I don't think it was, um, I don't think the pacing kind of ruined how, I guess the end result of how I felt about it overall. So it was still good. And I really liked the dad, even though he wasn't in there that much. I just liked that they had a cute little relationship and it seemed, their their family seemed very open with like how they talked to each other. And I liked that. So Yeah. I would I would recommend. I mean, a good movie. I mean, that's understood. Like, the dad wouldn't be as involved, or he won't be the focal point of the movie because it's the mother's. Yeah, it's not about so, him. Mother's mother. <laughs> um, I did like I did like the scene where the the, the scene that kind of sums up the movie perfectly. Mm. The dad and the daughter, where she's like, he's like, oh, I tell you stuff. And he was like, no, you don't tell me the important stuff. You know? mm. And this movie was kind of the mother and the daughter sharing the important stuff to a degree so yeah yeah um moving on to uh, the box office um so it was a duel of sequels i guess in the box office um but sadly you know downton abbey lost out of course to dr strange <laughs> this weekend um, I think I think my mother is deeply disappointed in that. I think she wanted to really. She's been like, oh, I need to see Bill Dalton Abbey. I was like, you can go. I'm not, you know, it's not my not my cup of tea, you know, not my cup of tea. But, <laughs> I hate it. Um. So yeah, and um, of course, another debut for the weekend was, of course, A24's Men, um, which mm. ended up taking a uh, fifth place. Um. So it's 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 not there wasn't really a big, uh what's the word, a big swath of debuts, especially this weekend, um, especially considering that is it is Cannes is going on right now. So these debuts are probably not going to come until the week for Cannes. I know, like, um, Top Gun debuted at Cannes, but it doesn't release nationwide until the 27th. So we're going to have to wait until post-Cannes and all these movies start rolling out what the reaction is to that. Um, but as far as the box office numbers for the weekend, um, what we had, um, number 10, uh, was the Northman. Um, of course, Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum, Lost City, held at eight for the weekend. Uh, Fantastic Beasts dropped to eight. Uh, Firestarter at seven. I'm sorry, Lost City dropped to nine. Um, Firestarter went to seven. Uh, everything everywhere at once uh dropped from five to six to six. Um still doing amazing in the theaters. For being in a theater for like eight weeks, the difference between last week and this week was just seven percent a seven percent loss. And it didn't lose 150 theaters. I think now it's starting to be digitally released. Um mm-hmm. but still to be in a theater is this long and like like look at Northman 
drop from had a big drop, like it's already in 10th death already, and it's been about two weeks, like four weeks shorter than anything that was. That goes to a testament of seeing these kind of movies in theater to give them a longevity. Um, of course, Ben, um, another A24, I think it's A24, I'm not sure, sure, yeah, debuted at five. Uh, Sonic 2, uh, debuted at uh, uh, not Patty Pew, it dropped from three to four. The bad guys went down from two to three. Of course, Downton Abbey, as I mentioned before, debuted at two. Um, and then, of course, Doctor Strange holds that number one still for the weekend. Um, internationally, of course, who do you who do you think runs the movie world internationally right now? Oh, is that a question for me? That's a question for you. Oh, <laughs> uh, Disney. Of course, Disney. <laughs> Of course, Doctor Strange is globally the number one movie for the weekend across the board, except for Saudi Arabia and South Africa. In Saudi Arabia, the North, the Northman is the number one movie for the weekend, and in South Africa, it's a uh, The Last Bus, um, which is a movie about um, an old man crossing the country in um, buses, and it's uh, so yeah. So Disney, of course, runs the world. But, Okay, um, <laughs> so we're going to move on to our Cannes news. Cannes, Cannes, Cannes. So the Cannes Festival, I think it's the 75th Cannes Festival, is going on right now. So we're going to get into everything that's going on over there. So the first big story comes um, from the fact that there are some censorship issues with um, the Cannes Fem Festival head, Terry Fermois. Um, so I guess Deadline, especially because there's been different reports about this, but this is from Deadline and they're saying that they were not able to publish their interview with him because he wanted some, well, he wanted a copy of it. He wanted to make some edits to it. Um, apparently from what I, I understand from this interview is that, um, they had an interview that seemingly went well. So it seemed like, it seemed like it was a cordial fine interview but the fact that they brought up some controversial issues like woman polanski and the fact that there wasn't that many diversity um or that much diversity there wasn't a lot of black people who were um able to show their films or be admitted to the festival have big premieres and stuff this year um that was another issue so i think one of the things that they were saying is that in rebuttal to them not being able to publish their interview with him. There were some comments made from the can people. They were saying that they don't give in to anything and they don't give in to political correctness. So I don't know what that means, but okay. Um, and then they basically said that this, this publishing site deadline was um, clickbaity and trashy journalism. And they also said that they uh, basically that they had they were some answers that were given were not going to make the people look good, especially Mr. Um, what's his name from Wa. So in response to that, he was basically just like. No, I'm not. Like, they were accusing him of censorship, and he was just like, "No, this is just what we do. Like, this is common practice here. Like, we don't have to give it. transparency to you guys." <laughs> and it's interesting because he did vote. He did voice his, his support for the Busan Film Festival that was being censored by authorities in Korea um, seven years ago. And it's interesting that um, he was saying that freedom of expression is what about it's what the festivals are about. And then the journalist was like, well, then that's the same for the press. We should be able to say what we want, which is true. Um, yeah. So a lot of issues here were raised about his transparency and not being able to, I guess, answer questions or not having those answers published. What are your thoughts? I mean, you can't talk about, hey, movies is a, a dialogue about how your thoughts and feelings, but then you want to conduct an interview and then, oh, yeah, the answer I gave, I don't want that being portrayed. Like, you're, you're, you're talking about cinema and as a whole, talking about saying it's your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions. 
you answer the question giving your thoughts, feelings, and emotions. But you know the backlash most likely you'll receive for expressing those thoughts, feelings, and emotions. So you want, he wanted, I think he wanted proof, not proof, he wanted um, to be able to check the article. Mm-hmm. So nothing, so anything he says will be taken a certain way. But it's up to, the thing with journalism also and media in general is what you say, depending on who you talk to, can be construed a multitude of different ways because they might understand the context of what you're saying from one, from their viewpoint understanding, and you might be saying that from another. So it's kind of, he's trying to have it both, the, the director of the film festival is trying to have it both ways. He wants to be able to say what he wants, but he also wants to control how it's received, which you, right. can't, you can't do that with film at all. So that's, yeah, that's true. So. I... It's interesting this topic here because I think that I I feel like they're right on a certain level. I don't know if they're right on all the levels. And what I mean by that is I think that when it comes to institutions, structural things, bigger things that have more, I guess, weight or responsibility for others in terms of like representation and all that stuff. So the Cannes Film Festival would fall under that category. Yeah, the right to transparency, you need that. You have to hold people accountable, especially when they're putting out certain things that could affect others, like art. So that's can that's the Oscars, that's all of these bigger institutions. When I think when it comes to individual people, though, um, especially if they're not like politicians or something, like someone where it would their actions would affect others in a very, um, I don't know, I guess serious way like actors, like singers or stuff like that, unless they've done something crazy. I think people have the right to conceal what they want to conceal. I think, um, especially if it's not affecting anyone else majorly, like, I feel like uh, you have the right to, like, not to have edit over certain things because there are journalists who will take what you're saying and twist it to fit their own narrative that they've already constructed. Um, And then because they have final edit, they get to be the ones to decide what stays in and what stays out. So it's like, or what goes out. So it's like, you could have gotten the full context for a certain answer and they decide to chop it out because timing or their editor says they don't want to have it in there or whatever. So I think it depends. Like, when it comes to like individual cases, but in terms of like bigger people who have responsibility over like festivals and academies and stuff like that, then that's different. I feel like you definitely need more transparency there. And the fact that he thinks it's common practice for them not to talk is interesting to me. Cause it's like, well, if, if, if what you said was fine, then you shouldn't care. If, yeah, if, if, if you know, <laughs> if you kind of know that what you're saying isn't going to rile people up, mm-hmm. you should be okay with it. That means something right. that he realized, like, wait, I said some fucked up shit. And he's like, something wasn't right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, it's my story. Is it my story? Or is it you? Um, <laughs> but continuing all this uh, Cannes news, of course, there's a bunch yeah. of directors around tables. Um, from voices like uh, Guillermo del Toro, Michael Hazavixis, Consagravas, uh, uh, Claude Lush, and Gaspar Note, um, all talking about the state of cinema and Hollywood and stuff like that. Um, Guillermo kind of said that the whole structure is not stable. Um, he's talking, he's said, uh, we're trying to enshrine the past and try to preserve it. It's not going to hold. The future will always present present itself, whatever you want. I think Guillermo, especially with the moves he does, he's always kind of him and um. Wow, why did my my mind just go blank? He's always on the cutting edge. I think of technology to agree with his movies because he he's always like you have Shape of Water, all those kind of movies kind of depend on technology to to sell his horror to a degree. Um, so I think he's more upsetting of the change in structure. Um, he even went on to say the pandemic shook everything up. Um, we, mm-hmm. survived, we survived the pandemic. Well, survived, air quotes. Okay. <laughs> uh, we had food medicine, food medicine stories. Those are the three things that sustained us for the years. Um, so I think, I think Guillermo's more open to the evolution of film, but then you have directors like, uh, uh, what's uh, Lelouch? Um, um, sorry. Claude Lelouch, who's talking about, oh, if you're in a theater, you know, 
he says he thinks cinemas will win, and he says he finds it difficult to watch any film on a mobile phone. Like, let's be honest, Claude. Who is watching a two-hour movie on their phone? Like, who? Mm. Who? Like, where where did you get the idea that, oh, people are streaming, so they're watching content on their phone? Usually when people go out and make content on mobile platforms, we're, we're making, we're cutting corners. Like, there are times where I've shot, like, oh, this content's only going on YouTube. All right, bet. I don't have to go top of the line quality because I know somebody nine times out of ten is going to watch your phone. Netflix movies don't function on a level. Have you ever tried to watch a, a movie on your phone at the airplane at a, on an airplane? You don't get mm. anything. Nobody's really watching these movies, like big budget Hollywood movies, on their mobile devices. You might say on a, a, a laptop at minimal, you know, when you're traveling. But other than that, mm. everybody's kind of using these streaming platforms in their houses on big screen TVs. Um, mm. And um, Gaspar Note, like he went on talking about how his issue over private p- piracy, um, he understood that it's not ideal, but the fact that, you know, the way the internet works and all these streaming platforms, you will have a younger generation of people who've never seen a lot of these classic films and international cinema become steeped in it. Like, even, like, for me, like, during the pandemic, like, my love of international films has grown exponentially because now I have easier access to it. Like, a couple of years ago, like, I would have struggled to even watch, you know, Petite Maman, like right now, like what we just talked about, mm. I never have known about it except for the internet where I can go and look for these movies and watch. So I think all these directors are in different lines. I think Guillermo kind of sums up this whole debate best is um, Guillermo, uh, he was like, our first duty is to tell stories. But mm. are not tell your story. Like the and it doesn't matter if it's in the theater, it's on, you know, local TV, Hallmark movie, it's on YouTube, on a streaming platform. The first duty is to share your story. And how, and however you're able to get an audience to view that story is secondary, you know? So hopefully more directors will catch onto the theme, theme of it instead of this whole battle of theaters and, and thing. And kind of, I think there's a generation of people who are trying to hold on to the good old days and mm-hmm. especially in Hollywood and things change, you gotta adapt with it. So Yeah. I think that we're I think the conversation about it is kind of tired now. Like I feel like we just need to understand that streamers are here to stay and that's just that is what is happening. Like we can't fight it anymore. Like this is the reality of the situation. And also that theaters aren't going anywhere. That's there's just certain movies that are going to be catered for that for that theater experience, I guess. Like, don't watch Dune on your laptop. You know, that doesn't make sense. Go to the theater and see it. I'm just saying, but there's still there's still films that are fit for different places. You know what I'm saying? You can have both. And I don't think either one is going anywhere. So everyone needs to kind of relax on that. Maybe the movie industry needs to change how they assess things in terms of box office, how they revenue, all that stuff. They have to, I think they need to kind of shift that. Because you can't play by the same rules because the rules are changing now. So yeah. you gotta you have to adapt to that. Yeah. Everyone does. So. All right, moving on. So basically, the crimes of future David Cronenberg, who made directed the movie, slams conservative U.S. politics. Um, basically, the film is about like performance art and about like a group of partners, Viggo Mortensen and Leah Sado, who are partners who are performance artists and they want to perform surgery on each other for. It's Cronenberg. I can't explain to you what it means. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think that is what that that's enough. You got you got you get it. Um, basically, during his Cannes um, press conference, he said that the film wasn't overly political, but that he wrote it twenty years ago. But that he kind of saw it was coming the idea of ownership or oppressive ownership and control. And he said in Canada, and I have said this recently, we think everyone in the U.S. is completely insane. I think the U.S. has gone completely bananas. And I can't believe what the elected officials are saying, not just about Roe v. Wade. So it's strange times. Um, And he's talking about the right-leaning political attitudes. And yeah, I agree. (laughs) I, I see no, I see no misinformation in this one. So yes. Yeah, he's it's really accurate. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff that goes goes on 
um, in this country is kind of absurd. Um, when you sit there and actually think about it, well, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, he's spot on. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, he's, yeah, that's it. He, you're spot on there, sir. Um, and I guess he was basically saying that like all film, all art is political. So it's either innately political or just overtly political, but it's still political, which is true. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's an expression of culture, context, intellect. So yeah, I don't think you can make anything that isn't, that has no, no politics or ish, or those kind of issues in it, because that's just life. So. Yeah. so piggybacking off of, you know, Camel and the director's roundtable and of course Cronenberg comments, we have comments from um, Armageddon Time director James Gray on why studios should be able to lose money on um, artistic divisions. You know, before the uh, Fox Disney merger, of course, you had uh, Fox Search, right, which gave open opportunity for a lot of blood or art style movies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the discussion of whether certain movies are a certain place or art be political, I think what he said is really on point. He talks mm-hmm. about how. Um, the business is making a big critical mistake. Um, and it's not really recent, but it's a big one. Um, we go into to, uh, theaters, even us in the podcast, talk about why this movie didn't make money. This movie didn't make money, so we don't like the film. And if mm. it makes money, we have to make more of it. And that's kind of the cycle with Hollywood. Like we see it now with the international box office of, you know, Disney having a stranglehold. They can release two different, 20 different movies and different countries. You'll see. Major distributor is Disney or producer of these movies is Disney. You kind of see it this week. It was Trek the Whole Dark Strange had globally. Um, you can see it to a degree in Cannes. So you have where the talk of the town is, you know, calling uh, Tom Cruise the last Hollywood star as far as international appeal and how Top Gun is premiering there uh, this weekend. Um, mm-hmm. As how the, the money is more the focus than the art side. Um, and he's saying we're we're losing stuff culturally because art is particularly political to a degree, especially your emotions and everything we talk about on here. Um, he even clarifies to say he loves comic book movies. He's see excellent ones are made. Um, he said he loves Tim Burton's uh, second Batman movie with uh, with Michelle Pfeiffer. He loves you know Chris what Chris Nolan did with Christian Bale. He loves Matt Reeves' take on it. He says every Batman movie kind of gives different parts of it. Um, and he knows all these kind of things can be done in uh, um, different in this different genres. Um, going to note, he was the director of Bad Asher, one of my favorite movies recently. Um, he says the movie slate kind of needs to be broader and give not just theatrical releases, but also smaller and smaller movies. We spoke about it last week on how kind of um, Disney kind of forced smaller a lot of movies out of their slots for debuting in Thursday. Like mm-hmm. I said, in one theater in New York, 70, 70 screenings were for Doctor Strange. And it kind of goes to show this tranquil these big budget studios have on these series. I remember the times I go to the downtown to the art cinema and I'm like, oh, these are wonderful movies being played, but the audience is so small because everybody's like, oh, I gotta see this big blockbuster event moving like every and you know the biggest symptom of it is Disney and Marvel. Like you have to watch every single movie to get the story. Nothing is on, mm. stands on its own. Like after watching, um, what was it? Multiverse of Madness. My friend was like, Oh, did you see what if I was like, no, nah. I was like, Oh, you gotta get it. You gotta watch what if to get some of the stuff in the movie. I was like, I really have to watch 20 other movies to enjoy one movie. So, yeah. so he is correct. As far as Hollywood is really stuck in a, we're only focused on those big budget blocks over it. And you see Odyssey just stumble with it. You have Warner Brothers tried to rush their DC cinematic universe and failed. And you've also had Universal Studios try to do the whole the dark universe with all Hollywood modern monster movies and it failed off the jump with the mummy. So I think Hollywood needs to sit back and figure out what it means culturally as mm. as the place of movies as art in a way. Yeah, that's a good point. They do. <laughs> um, okay, so moving on. Basically, Roman Polanski is um, filming or has already filmed a movie called The Palace. 
and he wants it to be released in France. Um, this kind of correlates with the Cannes Film Festival and also the Caesar Awards. I'll get into that in a second. Um, basically, he said that um, if the film does not get released in France, it's a crime, which is okay. Um, so basically, at the Caesar Awards, I think it was in 20... Was it 2019? Um, Celine Scamma, who we just talked about for Petite Mama, and Adele Haino, who was in Portion of Lady on Fire, walked out. I don't, I'm sure if you were paying attention to any of the film stuff around that time, you would have seen this walkout that was happening. Um, and she said, bravo, la pedophile, which is, if you don't know his crimes, then that's, uh, <laughs> that's a little snippet of that. Um, basically, he's been able to work in, in Europe because, you know, he left the U.S. to not be charged with those crimes or whatever. So he went to Europe and he's been thriving in Europe. Um, and film, big film festivals like Cannes, like Venice, they've always picked up his movies. He's been awarded Best Director, I think, last year at the Venice Film Festival. So, you know, everyone kind of gave him a pass. One of those questions that, you know, Fermo didn't answer was about Roman Polanski and I think it's because he was saying like we haven't changed our rules of who's allowed to be in or not so if he submitted a movie yeah he it can definitely go to competition and it could win so that's probably why he didn't want you know the interview to be published but anyways so I think that it's a good thing that now people are starting, especially in France, they're starting to move away from Polanski. They don't really want to work with him. They don't really want to like get involved with him. Obviously, they don't have final decisions on like bigger festivals, like who gets admit, who gets admitted or not. But they don't want to be associated with this person because of what he's done. It's sad it took so long for them to get on board. <laughs> That's a little disappointing very disappointing actually but i mean i guess we're here now so <laughs> i don't know i i i kind of find it funny that his comment was if this film doesn't get released in france it's a crime sir like sir all right Come sir you of all people shouldn't be saying what is and isn't a crime because you, you kind of isn't that ironic <laughs> you, you, you rape you 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 kind of raped a 13 year old girl that left the country i don't you have the u.s to avoid trial i don't think he's mm -hmm. commenting on on what's what a, on what's a crime yeah he said like, it, okay. it, it deeply wounded him it deeply wounded roman Polanski. i wonder what wounded up this a 13 year old woman i don't know i don't, I don't really have time for her mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah on. exactly it's like we don't we don't have time for it like we're just not gonna some things don't even dignify like a response like okay woman like just take your l and go away <laughs> and face your crimes actually get brought to justice that's what i want <laughs> get convicted anyways on that note of course uh we're talking about cans the movie this the cancel festival is also it is an ironic twist um if you've seen some of the poster work for cans it's also celebrating the truman show um um it being um what and the funny thing about truman show is kind of one of those i think it's one of the modern advents or modern twists of reality tv kind of put it in camera people's real lives um but cans kind of made a stumbling stumbling block and an attempt to you know I think these old institutions try too hard. They, you know, tried to partner to a degree with TikTok. Um, mm -hmm. uh, TikTok, it back earlier in March, announced that they'd be an official partner of the film festival this year. Uh, of course, Terry um, the director of the festival, said um, the goal is to diversify the audience of the festival, which, of course, diversify mm -hmm. the audience, bring a new generation of people into the love of film. Um, so, TikTok did get a competition for their own short films. Even though it wasn't an official event, the Cannes did award them with a jury headed by Cambodian filmmaker uh, Rithé Pan, and of course, a bunch of other judges. Um, but Pan quit uh, last Wednesday, because uh, he said two days before the awards were given out, uh, before the awards, he received an, he sent an email saying he quit because Team TikTok wanted to influence our decision about prize winners. 
Um, he went on to say, their world is not art. Um, he said, what issue it, uh, issue was, if he didn't want to name any names, but there are multiple people in TikTok trying to push the direction of Cannes, particularly awarding a lot of these filmmakers on the platform. And he said, they're really aggressive, stubborn, and close minded. Um, uh, TikTok did go on to issue a statement saying, as of any creative competition, there is a selection of a winner that is open to subjective entertainment, subjective interpretation. There may be differences of artistic opinion from independent panel judges. I think this goes on to a lot of issues TikTok has been having recently, uh, yes. with dealing with um, influencers and receiving credit. Uh, they seem kind of only focused on a small section of uh, cre- creatives on their platform. You've seen repeatedly times uh, not black, brown, any kind of minority filmmaker or uh, anybody who gets kind of a buzz on TikTok, their creativity is kind of modified and redistributed it from, let's be honest, a kind of untalented white person who's good at copying other people. And they become major influencers. And so you can kind of tell that this is something that was repeated in TikTok where they only wanted certain people with the certain clout to be known as a film festival award winner. Um, so yeah, the uh, problem is, you know, over 40 countries, 44 countries selected, all the projects range between 30 seconds to three minutes in length. Um, the top prize that end up going to two directors, um, one from Perchan, one from Japan, which showed a man meticulously building a wooden tub, and a Slovenian director who committed uh, who submitted a black and white short with two people flirting using an airplane. Um, so, yeah, hopefully, I just say Cannes' purpose and go with it, but I don't think TikTok is probably the platform. Not the platform probably the company you want to partner with in order to diversify the audience of movies, especially when TikTok itself as an organization has an issue with awarding diversity itself. So, Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, lastly, the Thor Love and Thunder full trailer was released. Um, I don't have much to say about this other than um, I love that Taika's the director of this again because he always pushes it and I think that's great. And that um, Christian Bale looks really cool as core. Anyways, that's it. I, I, I think it looks good too, but uh, something you start knowing is I think, as like if you, I think people have started to sit down and actually uh, critique Marvel a lot more, which is not is more. Yeah. I noticed that. I saw a comment um somebody having concerns. Yes, the Marvel, the, the, the store trailer is, you know, very bright and colorful and it's showing you different. It's invoking a lot of the stuff we saw in um, WandaVision using different black and whites, different different settings and totally colored, totally different from the whole film. Um, but somebody recognized something about the way um the scenes are how should I say? Uh, position like a lot of the shots in especially in this trailer seem to be very center focused with Thor just sending the ship to the center there's a lack of depth um somebody said they think uh Tiger's kind of smelling himself too much by being colorful and weird but his the way his shots look as far as not having enough depth in it are kind of bland and to that degree I kind of get what you're saying um these critiques are also happening for um of course, She-Hulk, because the trailer for that came out. Mm. A, a lot of the CGI, the CGI looks really bad on that. Uh, oh, yeah. But hopefully before the movie comes out, they can fix that up. Another movie show comes out, they can fix that up. Um, but yeah. I mean, I have no problem with people critiquing Marvel mm-hmm. artistic level, because Marvel, you created this problem by just pumping out three movies and three shows a year. So, and that's you might not like it, but these criticisms are going to happen once you start turning movies into a factory. So, yeah, good point. All right, so over on to weekend recommendations. Dale, what did you watch? I saw two movies. Um, The Kid and Me. Uh, saw Sonic Two. I enjoyed it. Had a blast. Had a big nostalgia trip because I remember 
getting into video games so i playing that game with my cousin he'd play sonic and i'd have to be tails so i wouldn't lose any rings um so i did i did love the movie a lot um another i saw another short film called the moil which is kind of dealing with um circumcision and how people try to balance those traditional religious views in a modern society um which is good because you know us as sdas as adventists we kind of people kind of say you have to do everything by the book with really no flexibility so it was a movie a short movie that i did understand and relate to a lot um so if it's on um i'd recommend anybody who's you know has a shares the same viewpoint you know of trying to balance you know society will still hold a traditional and how an older generation especially an older very conservative conservative religious generation kind of says you have to do everything by the book whereas a younger generation kind of goes we can still marriage both and be still perfectly fine without criticism so it was yeah i enjoyed watching it uh yeah i watched um I watched Little Women and The Stevens again, because those are like my comfort movies. But in terms of something new that I watch, I watch Conversation with Friends, which is based on a novel by Sally Rooney. Um, if you guys are familiar with Normal People, that show, same author, same, they're all in the same universe. Um, the the Rooniverse is the Rooney stands call it. Um, I did not watch Normal People and I did not read Normal People. I did read and I have conversations with friends. Thought it was a really interesting book. Um, the show is painfully uncomfortable, um, but the book was also painfully uncomfortable. So I think they're probably doing well. The only, I haven't watched all of it. I've watched like the first two episodes, but I think none of the characters have any chemistry. So that's going to be interesting considering that this story is about four people who are very intertwined and linked together. Hmm. I'm not feeling the chemistry. Um, I don't like some of the casting choices either, but that's just a side note, but whatever. I don't know how her fans feel about this. It's interesting that you have an author who's as involved in the television side of it. Um, like they're not just giving up the story rights or whatever. Like she's very involved in, I think she's like an executive producer or something of it. So it's interesting, mm. but yeah, I'll, I'll let you know how I feel about it when I'm done with it. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's it from us. Um, hope that you're having a good week and you're taking care of yourselves. Make sure to check out all of our social media, follow us on Letterboxd and support us if you can. And we will see you guys in the next episode. Goodbye. Au revoir.